Hey, listeners, this is David. You have oftentimes heard me say that we are recording from the William Adams Studios, and they are named for my longtime, perhaps my longest time friend, Bill Adams, who I grew up with and who I know from my days in Columbus, Georgia. As we are recording this, I am sad to report that William Adams Sr., Bill Adams' father, passed away. He was a man who was very much a part of his community. He oftentimes used his skills as a surgeon to help those who were not able to repay him other than with their gratitude. I just want to say that his memory is a blessing, and I am thankful for the Adams family and for all that they have meant in my life, and I hope that you will join me in my prayers for Bill and for his brothers and his mother. Thank you. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are finishing up Season 5. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I teach at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. And he's a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. David, good to be with you. Good to see you, too. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about impeachment, the narrowing but still huge range of candidates for the Democratic primary, and we'll be talking about the theology and spirituality of Christmas. pa pum pum <laughs> Me but, and my drum. But before we get into that, Dan, tell me how you've been. David, I have been better, and I have been, well, I don't know if I've always been worse. It's been rare. So what I'm referring to is for the last, the better part of the last week and a half, I have been really down with the flu. Um, those listeners who have been hearing the reports, at least as I've been hearing as well, this year's flu is, is really rough, and um, and it's it's no joking matter. This fall has been very busy, and people have been teasing me because, uh, you know, I've traveled all around the world, really. I mean, from Australia to Rome to London twice and, and back and all sorts of other places since August, and I've been, knock on wood, in very relatively good health, um, and I'm grateful for that. It's a real blessing. I'm very fortunate. But I'm home for one week at Thanksgiving, and uh, I get hit like a ton of bricks with this virus. And because of all the traveling and the busy schedule this fall, I've, I've kept kicking the can of my flu shot down the road. And so I'm not 100% sure that it was this strain of the flu. It was some kind of very, very nasty uh, virus that I had and that other people seem to be catching as well. I have had a number of students in the last week of classes who um, who have come down with things, and some of my brother friars now are, are getting sick and other friends and so forth. So it's it's really rough. I, I have to say I haven't been this sick. I, I'm better now, by the way. So th thanks be to God. Um, and, uh, you know, just so many blessings, so many opportunities to be able to rest and recover, to have a community of support. 
um, but also to be in a profession where though it was very difficult at the end of the semester, nobody likes to cancel classes or, or to postpone things and that sort, especially near the end of a term. You know, being a, a professor is is gives me a little bit of flexibility where there are a lot of people who would not have that flexibility. So as I was on my sickbed, uh, quite literally, um, for many days and, and was really uh, very ill, I was on the one hand, in prayer and in solidarity, prayerfully with those who are also sick and those who are chronically sick, you know, nothing really gives you an appreciation for health except when you lose it. And so I was very mindful and, and very uh, on the forefront of my my thoughts and, and in my explicitly in my prayers for those who are sick and those who struggle with illness and injury. So that was really humbling. But, you know, also mindful of those who have other responsibilities and have precarious uh, employment situations where they don't have the luxury of that kind of flexibility. So I was really grateful for that on the one hand, but also very mindful of those who, I mean, it, it's one of those things when you're sick like that, you cannot work. I mean, there's just, there's not even a choice. Um, even if you're in a position where you need to or you're, you feel conscripted into it, there, you just physically cannot. And so... So anyways, I, I just want to give a shout out to all those who are struggling with illness um, and also kind of a PSA, get your flu shot. It's really, yeah, for those like myself who are relatively young and relatively healthy, it really laid me on my back. And if I were somebody who had some other kind of condition or vulnerability or immune issue or I was an elder person or a young person, this is life-threatening, as, as we know. And so it's easy to hear that sometimes and go about our business, and I was guilty of that. This fall, I look back and I'm like, there, sh there could have been you know, an hour at some point where I could have gone to some clinic and just gotten stabbed with, <laughs> with, the, with the vaccine. And, and it's my fault entirely for not doing that. And I stayed quarantined as best I could so as not to spread that. But all of that is to say it's been an interesting week and a half, uh, certainly since Thanksgiving. I am doing better now. Uh, my, my lower back is thrown out. I think it's partly because I'm such normally an active runner and walker and, and to be frozen and to be coughing and contorting in weird ways for, for more than a week. Uh, my, my, my poor infrastructure, is, is, <laughs> skeletal structure is not appreciating that. Immobility will do that to you. It does. That's another yeah. thing I've thought a lot about. People with chronic pain, you know, the, the poor folks who, you know, for a variety of reasons are bedridden. Um, and I think of, you know, our, our elder sisters and brothers in nursing homes and hospitals. Um, it's, it's, it's really, there are cascading complications that come with illness. And so I'm, I'm, I'm on the positive side, recovery side of that, but um, it's been rough. And, uh, and I appreciate everybody's prayers through social media. David, how are you doing? It's so good to see you, man. It's good to see you. And I'm so glad that you're feeling better. I bet I was one of those people praying for you. Um, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. I'm good. I think the last time that we checked in, I said that I had had a little bit of difficulty and I'm, I'm doing a lot better, sleeping better and, uh, and able with the end of the semester, finally to have some, some return to regularity in my schedule just a very busy, busy semester, and I'm thankful for a little bit of time to be able to catch up on sleep and to catch up on work. The big thing on my radar has been that the show that I produce, Things Not Seen, it has been for the last couple of years on an evangelical station here in Chicago, and that hasn't always been the greatest of fits, because even though we're a religious show, we're not that kind of religious show. And uh, folks who have been listening to NPR and other reports may have may have heard that there has been some pulling back from the national network Salem that my particular uh, station is affiliated with. And so I got come for the witch burning, <laughs> stay for the radio program. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I got I got news from that organization a few weeks ago that they were no longer going to be airing my show after the end of the year. And I can't complain. I think it's been a good run. I've got no problems at all with the station. I feel like they actually went to bat for me a couple times when we got listener complaints because we were too, I don't know, <laughs> we were too progressive or too lefty or whatever. But all to say, the, the good news is, is that I've, I've had some meetings over the past couple weeks with some other station managers, and it looks like we will continue to be broadcast in Chicago on a new station a progressive talk station instead of an evangelical station, which may in some ways be a better fit. And that will also allow us to uh, continue our 
attempts to infiltrate the public radio system. And so that that will continue in 2020 as well. So congratulations. Yeah, I'm happy that that we will still be on the air. It's good to actually, as much as I like podcasting, I really love radio and I love the it's going to sound weird, but I love the limitations of radio. To have to do things to a certain amount of time and to have to do things within constraints is actually very comforting for me. So I, I'm glad to have that constraint still in my life, and I'm happy that uh, that people will still be able to randomly find us on the radio dial. So that's a good thing, too. I love it. Yeah. I guess with that, let's go ahead and take a moment to have a little bit of a break, and then when we get back, we'll be talking about impeachment. But you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton here with Dan Haran. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about news and events through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. The public portion of the congressional impeachment inquiry into the reported crimes of of President Donald Trump continue as we record this last episode of The Francis Effect podcast for the calendar year. In mid-November, the Congressional Intelligence Committee heard two weeks of public testimony from career officials, experts, and witnesses that provided a picture of the president's efforts to enlist a foreign nation to interfere with our 2020 national election. Two weeks ago, the Congressional Judiciary Committee began its own phase of the impeachment proceedings, hearing from constitutional scholars about the scope and nature of the president's alleged wrongdoings and whether they met the bar for impeachment according to the U.S. Constitution. The Judiciary Committee continued its public hearings last week. At this stage of the public process, national polling suggests that public opinion has not significantly changed since the impeachment inquiry began. Those who support the impeachment of Trump still do, and those who support Trump regardless of the facts remains the same. So some people have asked whether this process is worth the effort at all. What are we to make of the impeachment process so far? What should we expect moving forward? And to the point of this podcast, what might people of faith make of this, Dan? Great questions, David. So just a kind of an update. This will be old news by the time this episode drops, but David and I rec- are recording this on December 10th, Tuesday, December 10th. And there was about 14 minutes ago a New York Times news alert that the Judiciary Committee has announced that House Democrats unveiled two articles of impeachment against President Trump, the one being an article of abuse of power and the other being an obstruction of Congress article of impeachment. So we we have a little bit kind of forward motion here, additional information. But everything you said is exactly right, that this has been going on now for, for quite some time. On the one hand, it doesn't seem like very long at all. But on the other hand, this has been sort of brewing since actually well before the summer as there have been growing uh, interests in opening impeachment inquiries against uh, uh, President Trump, going back to the Mueller report, really, and the, and the Russia investigation. So in some ways, like, it seems like this has been an, an endless thing. But with the Ukraine pressuring, uh, the pressuring of the Ukrainian president uh, to open up investigations against uh, the Bidens and so forth, you know, this became an, an irrefutable, an irrefutably problematic circumstance that the that the Congress had to address. And so what do we make of this? On the one hand, I'm disappointed by the lack of kind of public interest change, as it were, or, or the polling results. I would think, especially after watching the two weeks of very damning and very powerful testimony before the Intelligence Committee, that there would be more of a public outcry about what's what's happening, uh, what has happened, and, and what should be done about it. But I think, I don't know about you, David, I find myself forgetting all too often that I really do live in a, in a, a kind of, not elitist in the sort of stereotypical sense, but in a, in a rarefied bubble of attention to news, attention to politics, attention. I mean, this is this is across the board, including when it comes to church matters. I mean, the stuff that we discuss on this podcast may sometimes be the, the first that some of our listeners are hearing about such and such a thing. And in the meantime, you know, I, I'm inclined to think, like, doesn't everybody know every little detail? Hasn't everybody read article upon article about such and such a expert's testimony, um, or even watch some of it live on C-SPAN, you know? And so I don't know what you think about that. Well, I've got a lot of thoughts, and I want to key off of that word that you used a moment ago, attention, and I want to attack that. I want to look at that in kind of two ways. 
One was a conversation that I had the other day with my father, and he lives in the area where I grew up, which is sort of uh, southwestern Georgia, like deep, deep south Georgia on the Georgia-Alabama border. And one of the things that he said was, you know, he goes most mornings to Burger King to sit with some friends and have breakfast. He's part of that crowd. He's part of that crowd. Every McDonald's and every Burger King has that crowd. Senior citizens who are there for about four hours. Yeah, and what he he made an offhand comment kind of jokingly to me because he knows my politics. And he said, you know, I sit with this crowd and they are kind of looking around at one another thinking about the news that has been going on in the last few weeks. And each one of them thinks to themselves, well, I don't know what to make of this, but I'm going to sit down tonight and watch Sean Hannity, and he's going to tell me what to think of this. Wow. And I think that speaks a little bit to attention. Like, even if someone was paying attention, and we talk a lot on this program about the notion of filters and how we, we sort of look at the news through a lens of Catholic faith. Well, I think that there are a lot of lenses through which you can look at a set of facts. And depending on how you filter those facts, depending on the sort of implicit biases that you bring to those facts, the, the kind of moral and, and epistemological judgments about what constitutes worthy factual arrangement, it can really change the way that people, that people interpret this. And that brings me to my second point, and that is a lot of hay has been made in the last month about the fact that the hearings are so boring and oh, this is the pizzazz yeah, issue. And this right? is a yeah. talking point that the that the right has brought up a lot, but it, it's also bled into the commentary on more progressive commentators are, are sort of picking this up as well, the notion that somehow this has to be exciting. I encourage you, uh, it's a fictionalized account, but it's still worth your time. I encourage you to go back and watch a movie called All the President's Men and look at how much the Watergate scandal was simply minutia and back page stuff until it wasn't. And this is the point. Building a case is patient work, and it takes actually laying out a chain of facts and then being able to bring a narrative to that chain of facts. And that's one of the things that I have heard in terms of commentary that is so frustrating to our friends on the right, and that is that they wish that we could just have one witness that we could discredit. And instead, what is happening is that there's this very patient, multiple-voice mosaic that's being brought where the the different layers are falling over one another and building a very solid case and that's much harder to knock down and so instead of trying to knock down the facts what they're trying to do is knock down the presentation this is so boring no one's paying attention then as was said at the top of the segment the needle hasn't moved in terms of public opinion well Again, if you go back and look at at Watergate, the needle didn't move in terms of public opinion until very late in the game. And that's the other thing is that I've heard a lot of comparison on NPR and other places about the timeline of this particular investigation towards impeachment over against the investigation towards impeachment in the Clinton administration. And I think that the better comparator is the Watergate administration, because in the Clinton administration, you had a, a different set of facts and the case turned on for want of a better word, a different signifying event. Yeah, it was quite literally more sexy. (laughs) Quite literally more sexy. Yeah. And what we're seeing in both the Watergate and now as has been unfolding in the last few weeks of testimony in this particular impeachment inquiry is a notion of the obstruction of elections and the tampering with elections. And that's a much more important question for our democracy. It's a much more technical question. And it's one that we know, if we look at North Carolina, if we look at other places, it's one that we know that is often obfuscated. It's often hidden under seemingly uh, above board dealing and the exclusion of franchise from people and the, the inability for people's votes to actually count. That's an important piece, but it's not always so easy to find. Well, and this came through very clearly recently in the public judiciary committee hearings. The first set of witnesses were four constitutional scholars. They were all law professors. And uh, three of them were, were, you know, called by or summoned by the Democrats. And one was summoned by the Republicans. And with understandable kind of uh, efforts to say that on the three Democratic kind of summoned professors, experts, that this was an impeachable offense or series of offenses on the part of Donald Trump. And the the fourth guy, you know, again, a, a reasonably respected law professor, George Washington University, you know, is trying to make a case like, well, I don't know if this is really impeachable, this sort of thing. In any event, 
I want to draw our attention, picking up on what, what you were saying a second ago about attention and about who's paying attention and how they make sense of interpretation and whether or not these uh, things are boring and this sort of thing. If I may rally for a moment against the just blatant anti-intellectualism that's on display. I mean, there are several things on display by the Republican members of Congress. Um, we saw this with the Intelligence Committee, with Nunez, who, by the way, it turns out is implicated as a, as a potential fact witness in this whole Ukraine process. Um, was there any kind of recusal or, or disclosure of that information? Absolutely not. That's another story altogether. But his sort of pandering to conspiracy theories and the ineptness of Republican counsel and, and then, of course, Jim Jordan, jacketless, yelling and screaming, and a, a congresswoman from upstate New York who likewise was kind of the pit bull star of the Republican side and all that kind of nonsense on the one hand displayed a certain mockery of the seriousness and state importance of what was unfolding. And I keep thinking about the historical significance of this. I mean, like, you know, there will be movies, there will be other things about this. You know, there, this will be in textbooks. It's only the third time we've had an impeachment of a president. And I'm inclined to be disrespectful, which I need to pace myself not to be um, as I get worked up. And, and so I was inclined to refer to the behavior of these clowns. But there is a circus-like dimension of rhetoric and, again, the conspiracy theories and everything. And this is all being entered into the record, the historical record. So I think about sometimes my frustration with the efforts to defend the Trump and the president, President Trump, in the short term that we see with the Republican members of Congress and with the kind of craziness, quite literally, the craziness of some of the things they're proposing and how that jeopardizes the long-term stability of the democratic process. And this brings me to the judiciary uh, hearings last week where you had these constitutional scholars, these professors from places like Stanford and Harvard. In the ranking member, Doug Collins of the Judiciary Committee, Republican of Georgia, in his opening remarks, was incredibly dismissive of these academics and of their life's work. I mean, they are the living best scholars of, of the Constitution, and particularly articles of the article that deals with executive impeachment. And at one point, he kind of says, well, I don't even think it's possible that any of you could have read this material and, and know enough about the background to even comment on what the Intelligence Committee report has suggested, because it's like 700 pages and blah, blah, blah. And uh, one of the professors, Professor Carlin from Stanford, was really quite righteously indignant and said, you know, I'm offended by your remarks. And her, she makes this case about the fact they are university professors. They are professional lawyers at the best universities in the world. They know how to read and how to study and how to prepare. And and I, as a, as a theologian, as a professor myself, as an academic, was like, the, the absolute disdain and dismissal, this guy's like, it's impossible. Nobody can read 700 pages in a week, it is so preposterous. And it drives me absolutely mad. So that's one thing. It's just a little bit of a rant because I think deferring of one's judgment to talking heads, whether it's Sean Hannity or whether it's Rachel Maddow, and they're of very different sorts. They're not, you know, of the same ilk. And nevertheless, is, I think, a abdicating of people's responsibility for clear judgment of sound reason of open-mindedness and actually there is no thinking about the facts there's so much in what you just said and as you were speaking what it drew me back to was a document prepared by the usccb forming consciences for faithful citizenship and in paragraph 14 it notes unfortunately politics in our country often can be a contest of powerful interests, partisan attacks, sound bites, and media hype. The church calls for a different kind of political engagement, one shaped by the moral convictions of well-formed consciences and focused on the dignity of every human being. And so when we're thinking about the ways in which public discourse is unfolding before our eyes right now, it's not reflective of this higher goal that the bishops are calling us to. Yeah, and that brings me, if I may, a little bit self-indulgent to refer our listeners back to my column last week. And for our Patreon supporters, there's a column commentary where I talk more about this. But it's exactly this theme that I pick up on, and, and I was inspired by uh, an article written by Martin Luther King Jr. back in the, in the early 60s where he talks about intellectual and spiritual blindness and talks about how actually – and this has really changed my view of these Republican Congress women and men that, – that they're not 
perhaps bad people, it's easy to kind of start ascribing malice to others, and, and we all do it on all sides. But rather, they're spiritually and intellectually blind people. And one of the things that King talks about is exactly what the bishops are trying to get at in that passage you quoted, which is that it's the church's responsibility to call women and men to use their God-given intelligence, that well-intentioned, even conscientious people mixed with kind of ignorance or spiritual blindness, as King puts it, is one of the most dangerous combinations you have in history. And it's destructive and it's it's really problematic. And I think that's one way to interpret what we see playing out before us is, on the one hand, the, the, the evidence is so very, very clear. But if you are somebody, even a well-intentioned person, and I think of your dad and, and his, his gang of Burger King coffee drinkers, I like to believe that they're well-intentioned people. They're not bad actors. But Martin Luther King Jr. and the U.S. bishops are saying you have to inform. I mean, it's not enough to be a person of conscience if it's not well-formed. You need to be somebody who's also informed because otherwise this kind of blindness is going to lead you to destructive behavior and it's going to be a distortion. You're going to be taken advantage of all the things we see play out. Well, another piece of that is I, I think that oftentimes the frustration at the kind of clown tactics that you're talking about can lead people who are of good conscience to withdraw from the public sphere and to get into a kind of quietism. And in that particular case, I just want to lift up another portion of this document from the USCCB, Faithful Citizenship. It says, in the Catholic tradition, responsible citizenship is a virtue and participation in political life is a moral obligation. So I say that in order to remind us and to underline what you're saying that we can't withdraw. We don't have the option of simply saying, oh, well, I'll just let that play itself out. I have, I have some theologian friends that I, I respect deeply, but they tend to take a politically quietest position. I have one friend in particular who just says, I never vote. I just let the Holy Spirit work it out. And I... I no. I, 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 Grazia cooperans, yeah, as Augustine would say. I can't, I can't go there. I need yeah. listeners to understand that they have an obligation to the least of these, and that as people of faith and as people of conscience, we have an obligation to use our privilege in the public sphere to make sure that those who who need protection and those who don't have a voice are able to have their needs and plights made known and repaired. Well, and the other thing, too, um, in addition to the fact that God works through secondary causes, that the Holy Spirit can't pull the uh, voting lever in the booth. The, the other thing that's important to realize is that some of this rhetoric that's used that, it, that motivates this quietism that you're describing is a sort of narrative that all politicians are corrupt, they're all bad, they're all egotistical, they all are out for themselves on both sides. And there's some truth to that. I mean, there's a truth that there's corruption in, in all political parties. And, you know, I, I think it's not unreasonable to have your own polite reservations about various motives and so forth. However... Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Yes, yeah, said, said our Ecclesiastes uh, <laughs> quoter over here. Yeah, I mean, but the, the honest truth is that, that the people who benefit from that kind of thinking are those who are the most um, corrupt. Mm. And so, you know, instead of addressing corruption, instead of addressing wrongdoing, you just say, well, everybody's corrupt and muddy the waters. So I, I think, you know, and I have family members too who fit into this quietest camp who aren't necessarily so pneumatologically influenced as your theologian friend might be or pneumatologically misled, but rather it's this idea that, well, you know, they're all terrible. And so what difference does it make? You know, and then they end up sitting home. I, I think some of those folks that I know who have in the past in several elections have used that kind of line have changed their tune a little bit. I've heard more often they're all terrible, but my only criterion this fall is, you know, whoever's not Trump. <laughs> and so I, I don't really approve that message either. I, I approve of the outcome potentially, but I think the sentiment is still problematic, um, which is we, we need to be engaged and uh, faithful citizenship is not oxymoronic. It's exactly at the heart of what it means to be a Catholic Christian in the public sphere. So maybe with that, it's a good place for us to uh, take a break. Yeah, I think so. And the last piece that I would say is prayerfully informed, prayerfully involved, towards a goal of moral seriousness, that should be what I think all of us should be engaged in. And with that, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalton. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about current events, politics, and other issues uh, through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. On December 3rd, Senator Kamala Harris of California dropped out of the runnings to be the Democratic candidate in the presidential race. Her withdrawal makes her the 12th primary candidate to drop out. Of course, this still leaves at least 15 potential candidates in the race toward the Democratic primary. The field is a mixture of senators. There are five of them, along with two members of the House, two former members of the Obama administration, one former governor, two mayors, and a partridge in a pear tree. Many in the field are millionaires. Two, in fact, are billionaires. But no matter the background, they're all making their move to ascend to the most powerful office in the world. David, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, so many. Uh, first of all, I have loved the fact that the Democratic primary field up to this point has been the most diverse that we've ever seen in terms of not only race and ethnicity, but also in terms of preference sexually, those kinds. I mean, we, we've had... Well, you've got gender diversity. You've got age diversity. Yeah, we had an openly gay, uh, who's actually still a front runner, openly mm -hmm. gay candidate. Yeah, totally. Across many different demographics. But what concerns me now is that as the field has been narrowing, it has been narrowing towards the same old choices that we've had in the past. And so it's looking more and more likely that the front runner is solidified as Joe Biden, which means, again, we have aged, white, male. And, and so those kinds of demographics, I think, are very frustrating to those who, I think, believed the hype of the Obama years, that there was the possibility of hope and change. And then we look around and say, but why are these still the, you know, of the many choices that we have in the field, why is it that it still always collapses down to be, we need an old white guy? Well, I have two thoughts on that. One is I generally share what I'm sensing is uh, disappointment and some questions around, you know, how things are shaking out. I will say, though, you know, just playing devil's advocate, Vice President Joe Biden kind of in the lead, he is an old white male, straight male kind of gaffe machine, uh, public servant figure. And yet he more so even than our candidates of color, the few that remain in the running, has the highest percentage of African-American support. And so there's something to be said about that. And, and we can make of that a variety of things. I think part of that support comes from an actual record. I think another major part of that support comes from the fact that the first and as of now only president of African descent chose him, selected him to be vice president. And so that's significant too. So that's one thing I want to highlight. The second thing is I don't know that it's an either or. I don't think... I'm not sure that you're saying this, but one way to interpret maybe your your concerns is the Obama administration and the promises of hope and change and the excitement around the coalition that made that election possible has kind of evaporated and maybe it was a mirage to begin with. It's not even real. And I will say this, the conditions of the, 20, the 2008 election were unique. And something that I've heard a number of political commentators, including Democratic strategists, point out is compare 2004 to 2008. President Obama would not have gotten the nomination in 2004 when people, when you had the sitting President George W. Bush, who was deeply unpopular, who had embroiled the country in two wars, one of which was purely illegal, and the other of which we've learned this week in the New York Times reporting should have ended. It was sort of a modern Vietnam, and that I'm referring to Afghanistan in terms of financial interest and the rest. It's a deeply corrupt war. Nevertheless, I think when there is fear and concern, including among voters of color, there is this concern about taking a chance on somebody, particularly when you're up against the possibility of four more years of a really problematic uh, president, problematic leadership. And so I think we are better to think of 2020 as analogous to 2004, which is its own sobering reminder, than we are to think of 2016 or 2008 or even 2012. So I, I think that's really important. I think it's disappointing, but I think history has already shown that, you know, the Howard Deans and the others who are the kind of exciting, more energetic, outsider kind of candidates don't shake through very far when, when the electorate is frightened. Howard Dean is an interesting example. Sometimes I get to teach audio production to various groups, and one of the examples that I use is that speech where Howard Dean's screaming and yelling campaign basically imploded. 
And what I point out to the people in these groups is that that was a very judiciously edited clip. And there was a choice made to not have the crowd noise be part of that feed. And that was a choice on the part of whoever edited that piece. And I remember sitting in my car listening to that as it was being kind of reported almost live the day that it happened. And I remember thinking to myself, his campaign is over. And the reason why it was over was because he had been he had been showcased as a maniac. But the showcasing of his mania was a very particular editorial choice. And I want to say that in terms of candidates in the running for the primary like Andrew Yang, who have gotten almost no press coverage, despite the fact that they are polling very strongly. And, you know, I don't agree necessarily with with Andrew Yang's platform or position, but I will say that the fact that an Asian candidate is getting less reportage in the in the news, a, a serious Asian candidate is getting less reportage in the news than someone like Marianne Williamson has gotten over the last few months. That's bothersome, but that speaks to the way in which the news is filtering what we're able to get, the message that we're able to get. Even if you look at some of the headlines, like, for example, the way in which Bernie Sanders is often reported is he's oftentimes reported as being in relationship to the other more acceptable candidates. And so even when he's at the top of a poll, he'll be reported as being the way that the headline will be written will make it sound as if the others are at the top of the poll. It's a strange sort of warp that we're seeing sometimes. And I'm not trying to be too paranoid about it, but I'm just trying to say you have to work hard in a field this broad to actually get information about all the candidates in sort of an equal way. I think that's right. It's true. I think a number of the candidates could rightfully complain about biased coverage if you're not Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, there are a number of focus groups that I heard about recently in some swing states like Wisconsin and Michigan and even some in the Southwest where there have been increasing kind of purple elections in in recent years that that just blew my my mind kind of explodes. And this is where I realize that I'm in this kind of, you know, news and, and information bubble that we were talking about earlier, because a number of people did not know who Kamala Harris was and never heard of her, didn't know who Pete Buttigieg was, right? And these are national figures. These are people who had made it to debate stages and 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 so forth. And I think one of the things that we forget is that Joe Biden is known because he was vice president for eight years and a very popular one at that. And Bernie Sanders is known because he had a very successful insurgent campaign in 2016 and was very, very popular in a populist sort of way, connected with people, you know, actually across aisles in, in that regard. But they're the only true name, name recognize, recognizable figures. And I wonder, too, at times, if that informs, you know, first of all, some of the reporting. I think it's certainly biased for sure. But I think the same thing can be said about the way that women are reported. I think it's gotten slightly better this year than it did in, in 2008 and then in 2016 around, you know, electability as kind of a code word for, you know, veiled misogyny in a sense. But there's also this question that race plays a big factor in all of this too. And, and that's um, when we look at whether it's uh, Andrew Yang as, as an Asian candidate, um, uh, if you look at Cory Booker or Kamala Harris, if you look at Julian Castro in terms of a, a Latino background, you know, they're also not getting the same kind of coverage, but they're also subjected, going back to my earlier comment about the Biden support among African-American communities, I think there's a lot of skepticism, particularly among communities that are most vulnerable to the effects of the Trump administration, to invest even in candidates of, you know, that more that more likely represents them in a variety of ways. And so I think there are a number of vectors that come together. The media shapes a certain narrative, but going back to our last segment, I don't know how many people are actually consuming some of this coverage. And so I don't know, at times I feel like I'm at a loss. Well, the other piece of this that I think is important to lay out is I started out talking about all the diversity in the primary field. The one place where there's not diversity is economic diversity, that most of these people, if not all of them, are people of tremendous means and they have access to resources. And in some cases, in the case of Mike Bloomberg and in the case of Tom Steyer, they're billionaires. Okay. And so Mike Bloomberg is on track to spend $24 million in one ad buy location, you know, over the next two months. He has poised himself to pay his workers on the ground $6,000 a month apiece to work for him. 
what I've heard from other Democratic operatives is that 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 completely blows out of the water anyone else. And so people are jumping ship to go and work for Bloomberg, even though they may not believe in Bloomberg's necessarily his platform or his or his agenda, partly because he is the one who has the resources to pay. Well, and I've heard, you know, I've I've gone back and forth about this because on the one hand, I have felt you know, this talk about the definition of a sense of entitlement, you know, you have $50 billion to spend and you can do whatever you want. On the other hand, it's been less widely reported. But even before Bloomberg decided to run as a candidate himself, he had already committed $100 million to ad buys to help combat nationwide some of the Trump campaign spending, which they already are doing in terms of digital ad buys, in terms of television ad buys. And so I think there is a sense in which the Bloomberg effect is a tide that raises all boats in the Democratic primary. The other thing is we're going to have to wait and see. This has never been done before. He has a strategy that includes skipping all four of the first major primaries. So that's, you know, of the three of the four are really, really important. We're talking about Iowa, uh, New Hampshire and South Carolina, which he just is not playing in, basically. And he's assuming that he can win not big on Super Tuesday, but enough. And I'm reminded of season six of The West Wing, in which there was a brokered convention. And you have two, you know, basically there was a big kind of pool of Democratic candidates, you know, running to replace Jed Bartlett as he was finishing a second term. And you have two candidates, including the sitting vice president. You have this kind of insurgent Latino congressman, Matt Santos, played by Jimmy Smits. And, and then you have this kind of disgraced former vice president who was caught up in all these extramarital affairs and everything who was holding. So th- no one had enough delegates to outright win the nomination. And yet the, the third character, Hoynes, former vice president Hoynes, had something like 900 delegates holding hostage, in other, in other words, to play a certain role in kingmaking, you know, going into that convention. Well, this is kind of Bloomberg's strategy. There's no way he's going to win outright enough delegates But he could win, you know, by getting 15 percent or so at each of these major states, he can get two or three, three or four. You know, he can accumulate enough to be a party pooper and and have some kind of role to play. So there's something to be said about this. There is. And I love you nerding out about the West Wing. My wife and I are big fans. And we oftentimes lament the fact that we don't live in the West Wing universe. We instead live in a universe that we live in. What I want to bring this back to is that same thing that we were talking about in the last segment, and that is what are Catholics called to do in this moment? I think that there's a misperception that says that somehow we have to, we have to prognosticate, we have to be able to prophesy who the winning candidate will be, and we should already be putting our chips in that basket. No, right now during primary season, your job is to find the candidate that most closely matches the way that you, in your moral seriousness, have discerned that government should be sort of shaped and run, and you should you should actively work for the success of that candidate. And it should be a partisan moment where we are actually having idea sort of battled against idea and we should be asking what is the best example of Medicare for all? What's the best example of making college affordable and dealing with student loans? What's the best example of taking care of those who are differently abled or those who are chronically impaired? What sorts of goods do we want to see and who is articulating them in the way that we think is the most acceptable? And you should be fighting hard for the success of that candidate. Once that candidate is either ascended to the top position in the primary or is sort of weeded out of the process, then there's a different question. But right now, the idea that we should somehow put all of our lines behind one particular candidate is not correct. This is primary season, and those that are engaged in primary season on either side of the political aisle should do so fervently and with moral seriousness. I think that's a really important admonition. And, uh, you know, just to put things again in historical perspective, going back to 2004, which I think is the closest analog we have for the circumstances in which we find ourselves in this national election, at this point in 2003, John Kerry was mortgaging his home in Boston because they had run out of money. He was not the leading candidate. That's a classic Matt Santos move right there. <laughs> I was just going to say that's very good. I was thinking about that recently too. I wasn't going to I wasn't going to double down on the nerdism but since you did. <laughs> that's what. 
Oh, man. I'm sorry for our listeners who are not Aaron Sorkin fans. Too bad for you. Anyways, this is this is the Francis Effect sponsored by the West Wing. <laughs> but in real life, that actually did happen. And, you know, it just goes to show that some commentators have been pointing out there are interesting parallels with Kamala Harris, where her campaign basically just dried up with money. She had no additional resources. There was no forward path for her, which is disappointing in a number of ways that we've already addressed, in, among others. But I bring that up as a sobering reminder that Joe Biden could be in the forefront and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg could be, you know, close in hand nationwide. And it could still be Andrew Yang or it could still be Michael Bloomberg or it could still be Amy Klobuchar. We don't really know. And I think this is the reason I think this is so important to keep in mind is to keep an, an open mind first and foremost, but also to do what, you, what it is you've said, which is to be people of conviction, people of prayer and of faith, and to recognize that, yes, no candidate is perfect, but who is the one, you know, not because you think they're going to win or that they're the best match against somebody like Donald Trump. That, that, is, that is putting the cart before the horse. We need to be people who are, are motivated by our convictions, by our faith, by our consciences. And the primary is the time for you to voice your values. It'll be a different situation when there's one nominee versus one nominee. And we will certainly be talking about that in season six and God willing, season seven, if we're all still alive. But I, I want to say that when someone like Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand drops out of the race, it's important to remember that they are still senators. And it's important to remember that they still need support because it's not just about the presidency, that if you are engaged in a sort of overall comprehensive worldview that wants to take care of the least of these, having a, a sense in which those senators, the Senate is important. The Supreme Court is important. Like the, the, the House of Representatives is important. And so having a strategy that is global and not just focused on the presidency is also an important part of this. In terms of like what we're talking about right now, we're focused on the president and the primary, but all of these other races are as important, if not in some ways more important. And so I think we'll also be talking about that in season six and season seven as well. I think we will for sure. That's probably a good place for us to end. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Festive Francis Effect. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran in his Santa hat. And uh, every couple of weeks we get together and talk about elves, reindeer, and you know the drill. Uh, today marks the one week until Christmas countdown. Radio stations have been blasting the hits. Pharmacies and department stores have been stocking the tchotchkes. And the online retailers have been spamming our inboxes with internet sales for last-minute gifts. But as omnipresent as the Christmas holiday has been in marketing and music, it can still feel as though we're left hanging when it comes to the meaning of the solemnity, especially from a Catholic Christian perspective. So let's talk about Christmas, the feast day itself, what it means theologically, liturgically, spiritually. What is Christmas, and what should we be doing to get ready for its arrival next week? I thought you were going to introduce me by saying I'm here with Father Daniel. Ho, 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 ran! <laughs> All right, I get that off my chest. So. I, it's an important question, David, and I'm glad you brought it up. We are kind of bombarded with a sense of Christmas, though at times, and I've, I've fluctuated over the years. I'd be interested to hear your kind of personal response to it, the kind of commercialization. There are times where I'm like, nah, it's not that big of a deal. There are other times where I really resent it, you know, where I, where I want to be in a particular Advent mood and think that we're rushing things. You know, it's the it's the day after Halloween and there's Christmas displays and CVS and that kind of thing, and it's a little bit much. And yet, um, I also think that because there's a kind of an interesting counterintuitive consequence of all of this early commodified, commercialized Christmasing, is that we kind of outsource the holiday, the solemnity itself, and so it's like we don't have to think about it because it's always already around us. And which reminds me of the movie Love Actually. And there's this, you know, one of the many strains of, of story, of plot, of narrative that kind of intersect in that. I, th I enjoy that movie. I think it's a good movie. Is this kind of old timey kind of burnt out rock star, British rock star whose uh, hit song, you know, the refrain begins with love is all around us. And his 
managers want him to put out a Christmas album and he has to smush the word Christmas in the place of love. And he's like, Christmas is all around us. And uh, anyways, that's apropos of absolutely nothing other than I think that lyric is quite true, that there's a sense in which Christmas is all around us and it's actually nowhere at the same time. Well, and one of the things that's weird for me is that in all of this focus on Christmas, we completely lose the season of Advent. And I'd, I'd be interested in what is the relationship between Advent and Christmas liturgically? Because we, we keep talking about Christmas, 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 but Christmas doesn't actually start until the solemnity of Christmas on the 24th. That's right, the Nativity of the Lord. And so, yeah, on the evening of the 24th, and it actually continues, there's an octave of Christmas. It's one of the two major solemnities, kind of high points of the church calendar, that is itself its own holiday. It's it's not holiday, its own liturgical season. So Christmas is actually eight days long. You know, you've got this business about the 12 days of Christmas. Well, part of that's actually a reference to the liturgical practice. Those who pray the office, the liturgy of the hours, professionally even as as a professed religious or as an ordained person or a layperson who prays the office will know that you, for the basically the eight days of the octave of the solemnity of Christmas, you pray the same psalms, which are Sunday morning week one psalms. It's the kind of high point of liturgical prayer. Because Christmas itself is its own season. It's a short season. It's eight days. It's not one day. It's eight days. And it extends beyond that, actually, in some ways, when we talk about Epiphany, when we talk about the baptism of the Lord, etc. But rewinding the clock a little bit, Advent is the beginning of the new liturgical year. It's, it's not the end of anything. We can feel that way in the Northern Hemisphere because it's the days are getting shorter, it's a longer night, and it's the end of the calendar year. But it's a season of preparation. It's a season of renewal. It's a season of anticipation, but it's it's a season that's oftentimes been described as uh, an experience of already not yet. And we see this in the four weeks of the readings around Advent marked by the, you know, liturgical colors of uh, violet and, and rose. You see it in the readings so that the season of Advent begins with actually a kind of an apocalyptic sort of second coming of Christ sort of motif, and it moves closer to the first coming of Christ, uh, the birth of the nativity. So you have both of these, the already that the birth of Christ has already happened, but the not yet of the second coming is anticipated as well as with, with, with the season of Advent. So it is its own discrete liturgical season, its own time of prayer, its own feel and vibe, but it has, and, and I'm trying not to be just kind of curmudgeonly old man, you know, you know, don't run in the, don't run near the pool or something like get out of my yard. But you know, there is a way in which it is lamentable that that we don't have the space to celebrate Advent as it rightly deserves. So I, yeah, that's that's my kind of primer on it. I wonder because in addition to the liturgical aspect of it, there's also let's be honest, there's a there's an emotional freight to the season as well, and part of it is it's exhausting. Fact, yeah, it's exhausting because there's a couple reasons. One, the days are getting shorter, which means that sunlight is less available and the weather is more gray and it's cold. So there's a lot of things that I think can be triggering for people. But there's also this emotional expectation that we should all have this veneer of kind of happiness and cheer. And I think especially as we've been talking about in the particular season that we're living in, and I mean season kind of in a more kind of cosmic sense, we aren't very cheerful. We're very embattled, and we're very much in a situation where we're arrayed one against the other. And so to go home at Thanksgiving or to go home at Christmas and to imagine that we're going to sit around a table in kind of holiday cheer with conviviality is oftentimes not possible. And it's not possible because we have convinced ourselves of narratives of exclusion. We've convinced ourselves that the person sitting across the table from us is not worthy of our hospitality. You know, that speaks to the heart of the Christmas narrative, you know, going from place to place. Is there any place where we can lay our heads tonight for, you know, for this woman who is great with child? And the answer again and again, no, 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 you're not welcome, you're not welcome, you're not welcome. I think that we have a lot to learn from that narrative. But one of the things that we oftentimes forget is that, you know, we don't just want our hospitality and our charity to be something that we put on like a Santa hat. Instead, we actually want it to be authentic. We want it to be a reflection of how we are genuinely comported towards one another. And so often we fall short of that or the situation falls short of that. And that in itself can also be exhausting. Yeah, it is. I think one of the interesting moods of Advent that gets lost in the chaos of kind of early Christmas commercialization 
is that it's a time of stillness and quiet, which is actually, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, the colder, darker days, longer nights, it's actually more conducive to the real feel of Advent liturgically. And by liturgically, I mean not just Sunday Masses, I mean the rhythm. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the life of prayer in the church in terms of formal prayer, and here again, I'm, I'm using as kind of a, a marker, a kind of a calendar, the Liturgy of the Hours, is that there's a, the season itself has its own feel. There's a new set of readings every day, and you see incrementally as you, as you move through the season of Advent toward Christmas, things begin to change. So one of my favorite traditions that not a lot of people know about, but they do inadvertently, and I'll get to that in a moment, actually begins today as this episode drops, and it's the last seven days of the Advent uh, season as we approach the last week of Advent before Christmas, and we get closer and closer. And it's the antiphon that takes place before the Magnificat at evening prayer every night. And in Latin, it begins with the word O, and it follows with one of the titles of Christ. So you have O Key of David, or you have O Shining Star, or you have O Emmanuel, God with us. And each of those terms has been put to music and has been overplayed, sadly, during most Advent seasons, and it's known as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So where the each of those, you know, you can look at all the seven verses of that, where those verses come from are from the, the traditional O antiphons that precede the Magnificat every evening of the divine office of the Liturgy of the Hours. So here's, here's one little kind of liturgical nerdism, kind of liturgical music admonition. Do not sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel until December 16th, <laughs> December 17th, you know, until you're in the last week of... Uh, and then only sing one verse a day. You know, that's one way, and you can build on it. You can sing the previous one, and it builds and it builds. And anyway, all this is to say that the, the, there's, a, there's a movement in those antiphons that draw from, they're all taken from little excerpts from the Hebrew Bible, from the prophet Isaiah, these little terms that refer to the coming Messiah. And, and it's beautiful when you match that with the, the rhythm and the poetry and the power of Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, where she gives praise to God in receiving Christ incarnate, you know, being conceiving of the Holy Spirit. And, and her prayer, as we recall, is one of, of a God who seeks the poor, who lifts up the lowly, who is a God of justice, who is a God of solidarity, who is a God of ancestors, who has been there with us and will be there for us. And it's a deeply powerful, moving reflection about the the coming of Christ. So, you know, I may, by the time people are listening to this, we're down to that final week. And one thing I might encourage is, particularly those in the Northern Hemisphere, it's, it's not easy with busy lives and shopping lists and, and family and work responsibilities and so forth. But to take 10 minutes to be in a quiet place, maybe even light a candle and either, you know, listen to a recording of O Come and Come Emmanuel or pray. You know, you can find online if you Google O Antiphons, you can find, I think there's even a Wikipedia page where you could find the original, you know, scripture quote. Where does it come from in Isaiah? Where does it come from, you know, in prophetic literature? And just sit with that for a minute in that silence. You know, there's a great Advent hymn, I, I believe Marty Hagen composed it, but I'm not sure. The refrain of which says something to the effect of, my soul in stillness waits, waits for you, O Lord. And I think that to me summarizes what Advent is meant to be. And it kind of is an opportunity of uh, kind of a, you know, like an antidote to the busyness of, of the commercial Christmas season. But I, I mean, I, I'm also interested in talking about how Christmas doesn't just become a blip. You know, every, it's, it's a lot of rush toward Christmas you know, in society. And then it's just kind of like something that passes and December 6th rolls around and it's like, all right, let's take down the decorations and everything like that. I've got so many feelings about that. So I've got a memory. I was not raised in the church and Christmas was a fraught time in my household because for all the reasons that I said, the, the pressures of trying to put on the nice veneer sort of cracked through the veneer that we lived in my rather fraught household the rest of the year. And so Christmas time was often a time when the family was at its most violent and, it, and its most pitched. 
And yet there was this hopefulness in Christmas that I attached to. I knew that there was something there was something in the season that was intended to be better than what I was seeing. And my relationship to that was through a Christmas album made by Sesame Street. It was a, oh, mu- it was wow. a Muppet Christmas album. And there was, there was one particular track at the end of that album that I could never listen to all the way through. And the, the, the refrain of that particular song is, Keep Christmas with you all through the year. When Christmas is over, save some Christmas cheer. Oh, yeah. And I would always, I was like six, seven, eight years old, I would always well up with emotions when I heard that. And I think that that's speaking to what you're talking about, that we tend to make this be simply a passing moment on the highway instead of being something that causes us to slow down and reflect. And as I say that, I think of the magnificent Christmas oratorio by W.H. Auden for the time being. And Auden references this. He talks about how we put away the presents and the garlands and we pretend as if this amazing event of God interrupting the world in the person of Jesus Christ is something that we can simply throw away with the Christmas wrapping. And if we allow ourselves to linger and to be arrested by this, the danger that Auden points out is that we might actually think that we're required to live this other than one day a year. And that that piece, that notion of, of how we are called to be more than simply Christmas visitors, but Christmas ambassadors— and what to be a Christmas ambassador might mean, what it might mean to to actually live the welcome of the manger, what it might actually mean to live the hospitality of gathering the stranger and the and the the shepherds and the magi and the smelly people to partake in our feast and to participate in our joy. All of those pieces are part of what we're called to do. And as Auden points out, we all, we so often fail to do because we would rather simply have the, and I'm paraphrasing here, we'd rather have the the uh, the anesthesia of commercialism. It's so true. It's so true. It's and it's powerful to remember what it is we're celebrating. I mean, it's easy to talk about baby Jesus's birthday or keep Christ in Christmas in a superficial way that it becomes a bit commodified itself. And we're talking about God. The creator of the universe, God, who is the most self-reliant and independent in need of nothing and no one, who, as the letter to the Philippians points out, empties God's self. You know, the thing, you know, we strive ever since our great ancestors signified by Adam and Eve to try to be things other than God created us to be. We hold on to such stupid little power and such stupid little stupid little advantages or perceived advantages over others and senses of security and comfort. And God, who needs nothing, gives literally everything up to be as vulnerable as one can be, to enter the world as a first century Palestinian Jewish little baby who is a refugee, who then becomes somebody who's on the run with his parents, um, who's completely dependent on humanity to be cared for and to be raised and to be supported. And what do we do in turn? But, you know, crucify this God of love who takes on flesh to be with us. And so I think it's also important, you know, that there's, there's an ethical challenge. We've been talking a lot in this episode about forming consciences and, and, and David has rightly reminded us about the, the relationship between the civil responsibilities we have to be active participants, people of faith who, who vote and who advocate for the least among us. And I'm reminded of a very powerful essay that Thomas Merton, who actually, as we're recording this, this is the 51st anniversary of his death um, in in 1968, December 10th, 1968. He, in the 1960s, wrote an essay called The Time of the End is the Time of No Room. And it's an essay that is very Advent-focused in a way and very Christological and incarnational. And he's got this, this line, you know, where he's talking, and I'm going to share it with you if I may, where he talks about the inn, you know, this idea that there's no room in the inn. And he says, into this world, this demented inn, in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ has come uninvited. But because he cannot be at home in it, because he is out of place in it, and yet he must be in it, his place is with those others for whom there is no room. His place is with those who do not belong, 
who are rejected by power because they are regarded as weak, those who are discredited, who are denied the status of persons, tortured, exterminated, with those for whom there is no room, Christ is present in the world. He is mysteriously present in those for whom there seems to be nothing but the world at its worst. For them, there is no escape even in imagination. It's striking because the significance of the Incarnation is more than just an occasion for us to get together and pat ourselves on the back and exchange gifts and even put on the veneer of hospitality. It's about a God who enters the world as one of us who is in solidarity with those who are no persons, who are dismissed and written off and ignored, and the people who will freeze to death tonight and the people who will die by themselves tonight and the people who are excluded at our southern borders and the people who are excluded even in their own families and churches. You know, Christ entered into this demented inn, this world in which we find ourselves. And I like to think, at least, you know, as, as people of faith, that we can take this Christmas season, this opportunity to renew and to recharge, particularly as we have a week left in anticipation, to look at those and pray with those O antiphons, the coming of Christ in all these magnificent ways, but to remember who it is that came and what it is he was about. And hopefully that's something we can hold on to, as you say, David, throughout the year. And on that note, we wish all of our listeners a blessed end to Advent, a Merry Christmas season. We'll be back with you in the spring for season six of The Francis Effect. Thank you for being with us on this journey. I've really enjoyed being with you on it, Dan, and thank you for being here. Likewise, David, Merry Christmas and blessings to you and your family and to all of our listeners. And we'll be back with you soon. Be well and peace. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We now have five full seasons of episodes that you can check out. Thank you for listening.